Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in Fermina Kim. Buckminster Fuller was anti-establishment before the concept existed. He talked like a startup founder before Silicon Valley existed. Bucky Fuller wrote many books himself and has been written about many times over, but never quite like Alec Navala Lee has done with Inventor of the Future. Navala Lee's delved behind the myth-making to uncover the truth about Buckminster Fuller and found a genuine visionary who was also not everything he claimed to be. That's coming up right after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Full disclosure here, when I was about 10 years old in 1980, I was one of three children asked to interview a kooky, famous genius inventor named Buckminster Fuller. The idea behind the book that came out of those talks, Fuller's Earth, was this. If Bucky had to make sense of his ideas for kids, he'd have to make sense to grown-ups, too. But now that I've dived into a new biography about Bucky called Inventor of the Future, I think I've come to the realization that no book by or about this man could tell the tale properly during his lifetime. Which is why I'm so excited today that we've got Alec Navala Lee in to talk about his new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. Alec, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you, Rachel. I am delighted to be here. You know, I, I, got, I think first things first, why don't we start at the beginning? Buckminster Fuller was an odd child who nonetheless thought he was destined for greatness. Yes. Yeah, so Fuller, um, I mean, I don't know where, where you want to start. Uh, you know, he had an incredibly <laughs> interesting life. Um, and I think starting when he was a child is a good place to begin, right? Because he was born in 1895, to give you a sense of the, uh, the time scale we're talking about here. And he died in 1983. So you would have met him when he was 85 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the fun things about writing his life story is that, you know, he's one of the few people I can think of in any field whose life was interesting from beginning to end. Um, when he was um, very young, you know, he was born almost blind. Uh, he was severely farsighted. And so he learned to see the world around him using his other senses, so especially touch. Um, and this really influenced his um, later experiments with architecture, with geometry, you know, all of which he traced back to the fact that, you know, when he wanted to explore structures, he wasn't um, able to see houses and buildings in the way other people did. You know, he had to sort of proceed intuitively by feel to sort of um, arrive at what he thought of as stable structures. And so, you know, he definitely like was someone who was very tapped into his childhood and, you know, very aware of what it meant to see the world with a child's eyes. You know, when I was a kid, I bought all of Fuller's stories as relayed to be relayed to me by my dad 
hook, line, and sinker. Buckminster Fuller had a telepathic first daughter. He pretty much didn't speak following a mystical experience in which he realized his life's purpose for two years. I would never have guessed in a million years, Alec, that he was the kind of guy that slept around on his wife and stole credit for other people's inventions or failed to manage, uh, mention collaborators. Was this process of research for this book disappointing for you? Um, I wouldn't say it was disappointing. I, I will say it was in, um, enlightening or revealing because, you know, going in, I mean, I should I should kind of give some background on Fuller here. So you met him when he was 85 years old, and he really became world famous, I would say, um, in some ways the most famous futurist in the world when he was in his 60s and 70s. So the image of Fuller that people tend to have is one of an old man who, you know, is wearing these big black glasses and this black suit. And, um, you know, he, he, you know, became famous at a time when a lot of the earlier details of his life had been forgotten. But, you know, he had a long career before he emerged kind of full-blown in the counterculture as this kind of iconic hero. And if you look back, you, you do see that the young man who he was um, is very different from the sort of idolized picture that he presented during his lifetime and that his followers sort of uncritically accepted. You know, that's a really good way of putting it. And and you're describing a man who who really electrified audiences, especially in the 60s and 70s. He resonated with such a wide variety of people, hippies, engineers, student architects, prison inmates. How did he manage to do this? So I, I kind of see Fuller as a um, quintessentially American type that has taken on different incarnations over the years. And I think the version that we are most uh, familiar with t- today is the startup founder. I, I think of Fuller in some ways as the prototype of the modern startup founder. And so if you look at his influence, you know, he clearly uh, was, you know, very popular among people like Steve Jobs, uh, you know, other uh, you know, members of that circle that really catalyzed the personal computer revolution in the Bay Area in the 70s. And, and you look at his techniques and his strategies and the way he um, the way he molded his public persona, and you see that he's using a lot of the same approaches you see now, the idea that design is the solution to the world's problems, the idea that technology and not politics is the way to change things, and especially the idea that, you know, you can change the world through through big ideas. I think, you know, that's still kind of the pitch that a lot of startups um, present to investors and to customers. And I think Fuller, you know, maybe he didn't invent that approach, but he certainly perfected it. And, and you can see his influence now in the way these companies and these visionary figures talk about themselves. And so I think, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s especially, which was a time of real social change and crisis, you know, much like today, you know, someone like that is incredibly appealing. I want to go into some of his inventions, flawed inventions and, you know, brilliant inventions. But, but I first want to talk about his thinking and and the ways in which, you know, he he's really quite relevant even today. Like like he coined a number of terms we, we we take for granted today. Synergy, spaceship earth. The way he thought um was was exciting and inspiring. Yes. So, so I think, you know, if, if um, I, I'm talking to somebody and they don't know who Fuller was, you know, I usually start with um, his most famous um, invention, which is the geodesic dome. 
So if you look at Epcot Center, Spaceship Earth, right, this, this uh, geodesic sphere at Disney World is essentially appropriating Fuller's most famous metaphor and most famous design. Um, and you can see domes everywhere today. You see them on playgrounds. You see them in dome tents. You know, the, the, the dome kind of was his most successful idea. But, you know, he didn't come up with the idea for the dome until he was 53. And uh, he'd already spent decades at that point popularizing these ideas about housing, about design, uh, about geometry. And the dome kind of emerged almost by accident from these these um, theories and these concepts. And, you know, toward the end of his life, he, he actually said that he was tired of being known as the dome man because he sort of saw his ideas as being bigger than this. You know, he saw himself as someone who was actually describing, uh, you know, in some ways the ways that the universe actually worked. He, he was discovering axioms and rules that, you know, would govern how nature builds and how um, designs could be made more efficient. And to him, like, the dome was the most successful incarnation of these ideas, but it was not the only one. He, he, he pursued and developed, you know, countless ideas over the course of his career. So now I'm going to give you a little pop quiz, Alec. And, you know, a lot of people will picture the geodesic dome, like you say, from theme parks or maybe from movies where, you know, <laughs> they're often used to house evil geniuses. <laughs> but, you know... I, Give do us a favor and explain for us the the science the the geometry the trigonometry of a geodesic dome. So just to put things in context um, briefly, so Fuller came up with the idea for the dome in forty eight nineteen forty eight, and this is a time at which he had been trying for a long time to develop um, a mass produced house, and the house that he had in mind initially was uh, a roundhouse made of aluminum and piano wire and plastic. And, you know, it, it would have taken like a, a huge factory operation to produce, you know, and, and that's part of the reason why it, it never really took off. So in 48, he has no money. He has no resources. He's essentially squandered, you know, his goodwill with investors. And, you know, his reputation is one of someone who is very hard to work with. And so he really has nothing except himself. And what he does, I think, is fascinating. He actually he goes to the hardware store, and he's been you know intrigued by geometry for much of his life, and he buys uh, sticks and twine and string and wire and all this stuff that he can use to build models at his kitchen table. And eventually, he discovers that you can make a hemispherical structure out of what he calls the intersecting great circles of different polyhedra. And that sounds very technical, but basically, if you picture a playground dome or a um, you know, uh, the, the sort of uh, the scaffold triangula triangulated structure that, you know, you can probably picture, um, as you say, like from science fiction movies, uh, movies like The Martian, you know, you, you've seen domes there. You know, so this is a design that is very simple. You know, it's one that um, is refined over time and the initial versions of it are like a little bit harder to assemble than they are later on. But fundamentally, this is something that he can build himself. Um, you know, so it's made up of these um, intersecting uh, elements like um, metal rods or it can be made out of cardboard or plywood or, you know, plastic. You know, so it's very versatile and it can be done um, on a budget. He can make it um, out of materials from a five and dime store with uh, college kids because he is not 
you know, in, in a position at the moment to start a company, but he is a popular teacher. And so he can go to colleges around the country and spend six weeks constructing this dome, uh, you know, with uh, college students. And the result, as you point out, it looks like something out of science fiction. It looks like something that uh, represents the house of the future. And he can make it for, you know, pennies, right? Um, and so to me, like the dome is this amazing artifact because it looks and photographs like this futuristic technology and it becomes incredibly popular and uh, famous, you know, largely for that reason. But at the same time, it's something that he can produce um, using minimal resources. Um, and I think that's kind of why the, the dome takes off and kind of saves his career at that crucial point. And, you know, this is something it it was in, uh, intended to be potentially mass produced uh, intended to be a, a, a creative sidestep around many of the the issues that dog housing construction really going back a couple centuries now um, and you know it, it works sometimes but not really as an individual house for a lot of people anyway you know, one funny thing about Fuller is that so he, he's talking about building a house and a factory starting in the late 20s. So this is an idea that, that he's obsessed by. And, and fairly early on, he realizes that, you know, a house you can separate into two pieces. There's the utilities, which is, you know, the, the kitchen, the bathroom, you know, that kind of thing. And there's the outer shell. And the outer shell can be made you know, out of almost anything, right? And the utility core is sort of like the the place where you would put all the appliances and the plumbing and all that stuff. And so in theory, starting in the 40s, he's developing the dome as a shell, as an, as an outer covering to protect the interior from the elements. But at the same time, in theory, he's developing the utilities as well. But the issue is that it's actually very hard to develop utilities. It's hard to make a, a portable toilet. It's hard to make, you know, a kitchen that can fit into like a small space. And so around the mid-50s, he kind of forgets about the utilities. He kind of says, okay, this is like not relevant to what I'm doing. And so he starts to build the shell alone. And he does you know, different kinds of shells and, and dome enclosures. But, you know, as you point out, like this is All right, I'm, I'm going to stop you there, <laughs> Alec. We'll continue this in just a moment. Alec Navala-Lee, author of the new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller, is here with us on Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking about Buckminster Fuller, his life and influence with Alec Navala Lee, author of the new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. His previous books include Astounding, John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and The Golden Age of Science Fiction. Have you ever heard Buckminster Fuller speak or 
tried to read one of his books? If so, we want you to join the conversation with us. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can, of course, email us, forum at KQED, or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You know, I, I thought, Alec, that we might listen to Buckminster Fuller actually speak. We, we've got a couple clips lined up. And truth be told, it almost doesn't matter which clip uh, I have our engineer Danny Bringer play, uh, because listeners, I defy you to make out what he's saying in this kind of weird, breathless mumble. So you get your black box for $200, and you go off in a geodesic dome, uh, some beautiful space umbrella, someplace, and uh, anywhere you want, and, and someplace where there's no high, high pressure uh, of living, and you pick a beautiful spot just as we are here in this island. I, I mean, as you could hear, Alec, right? Uh, he's speaking in this, you know, going at 7,000 miles per hour, you know, with that New England accent, but speaking in a mumble. Uh, and, and yet people heard him, or they felt they heard him. Yeah, no, I mean, what you uh, chose to play actually ties in nicely with what I was talking about before the break. You know, he talks about having a black box, which is basically the utility core. So it has your bathroom, it has your kitchen, and this, like, portable, you know, sort of like a, a little cube that you can take with you. And then it has what he calls the umbrella, the, the dome, which you put those two things together and you have a house, right? And in practice, he couldn't really do the utilities, and so he just sold people on the dome, which, as you alluded to earlier, you know, it's, it's a nice-looking design. It clearly is very photogenic, but it has a lot of practical issues. You know, there's a reason why we don't live in domes today. They tend to leak. They have issues with um, being attached or modified. You Acoustics. Know, a lot of... yeah. Yes, yes. So, you know, th- th- this to me is very typical. Like, you know, a lot of Fuller's ideas I think are fascinating, but he would often um, kind of paper over or uh, downplay the downsides to some of these concepts he was promoting. You know, another big issue, uh, the man's writing was, was unreadable. Or, or is that just me? No, it's not just you. I mean, I read everything he ever wrote uh, and in the course of researching this biography. And, you know, I mean, I think about this almost like you think talk about the word synergy, right? So when Fuller was was alive, he would often ask audiences, oh, how many people here know the word synergy? And he claims that almost no one would raise their hand. And, you know, he would explain to them what this concept meant. And obviously now you think of synergy as like the ultimate example of corporate speak as sort of this annoying buzzword you hear thrown around all the time. And, and Fuller popularized it. He popularized things like Spaceship Earth. And he kind of becomes this, um, again, like the way a startup founder might do this today, you're creating a corporate language. You're creating a language that divides the world into um, insiders and outsiders. And so with Fuller, you know, to kind of understand, you know, his vocabulary and these incredible difficult concepts. He's like just sort of unfurling in front of you in these hour-long lectures. It's almost like a rite of passage. You have people who become fuller fans and fuller acolytes who learn that language. They learn to talk in, you know, the terms that he's laid down. They love that lingo. Michael tweets, I remember going to Fermilab in the 1970s and seeing a geodesic dome made from plexiglass segments sandwiching steel soda pop cans as an example of reuse. And we're getting calls in as well. I'm going to urge everyone again, pick up that phone, 866-733-6786. If you've got a story to tell or a question to ask Alec, who has just told us that he read everything. Everything Buckminster Fuller has written. That's 866-733-6786. Let's go now to Philip in Oakland. Hi, Philip. Hi there. Hi. What's your story? Hi. Um, 
so I was uh, just about to enter college, and I had a friend who had, this is, I believe, 1969, 68, 69, and uh, I had a friend who knew of Fuller, and there were a series of films made called, uh, I think it's World Gang. It was about his class at Columbia University where the, and this is all from memory from that period, but the uh, the format, uh, as I recall, was that the problems of the future would not be addressed politically, as was alluded to earlier, but they, but they would, in this forum, resolve the future issues uh, humanity would face. One of them, uh, I recall, was uh, taking the electro- electrical grid throughout the world, and uh, for example, where on one side of the Earth the sun was hitting it. And you could absorb that in solar panels, you know, transferring that energy to the other side. So futurist ideas like that. He also spoke of architecture being a fantastic multidisciplinary uh, search and, and, and way to educate yourself. And I'd always been interested in architecture, but that was kind of the, the inspiration for me to go ahead and uh, I went to architecture school and have uh, been involved in the profession ever since. So that clinched it for you. Thank you, Philip, for sharing that story. Let's go now to Hills in Santa Barbara. Hello. Um, I'm fortunate to have heard a lecture from, every, they call him Bucky, Buckminster Fuller at UC Santa Cruz in about 1979. And what was really he uh, being addressed was, overbuilding and therefore wasteful building practices for common homes. And a point he made was that the foundations were too big and wasteful and that a single family home could be supported on, if you did the math, he kept saying, if you did the math, on one cement block. Um, Also curious about related architects that if you have any information about, for instance, my friend's dad, Peter Pierce, was influenced by Eames, well, worked for Eames, and then also was influenced by Fuller to build um, geodesic structures for buildings. And then um, wondering if he was also influenced by John Lautner, who uh, 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 came from, you know, was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, let's put that question to Alec. Uh, so I don't know about uh, John Lautner. I do know about Peter Pierce. So this is interesting. So Peter Pierce was an associate of Fuller's for a long time who worked with him on his geometry. And so um, one thing about Fuller that's interesting is that he starts out in housing and then as it gets harder and harder for him to uh, actually, you know, get these building projects done for real, you know, geometry kind of becomes his main product line. He starts to like, you know, generate these incredibly um, elaborate axioms, as I said earlier, uh, of a kind of geometry that he calls uh, synergetics. And Peter Pierce was one of the collaborators who, at one point or other, was working with him on that project. And then after his death, Peter Pierce becomes involved with something called Biosphere 2. Uh, you know, do we know what this is? Um, you know, this is this kind of like a space colony project in Arizona that um, was funded. And the idea was that this crew of eight people would go inside and um, live there for two years without um, introducing any um, resources from the outside. And uh, this is, you know, obviously a very interesting story. And uh, the founder said that Fuller was essentially the inspiration for that project. And, and Peter Pierce was 
the designer who worked on, you know, that actual um, space frame that enclosed all that, um, that acreage in Arizona. Greg asks, geodesic domes and tensegrity were big ideas when I was growing up. Hippies loved the domes because they were so freaky looking. But looking back, I don't see any that any of his ideas are actually in use today. Nobody's building dome houses or proposing them for dealing with a housing crisis. Are any of his concrete technologies or design principles of influence today? Uh, that's a good question. You know, as I point out, you know, the dome itself has a lot of limitations as, um, you know, a structure. And I think this is part of the reason why it never really took off. Uh, although there are still companies that are trying to develop improved uh, domes for uh, for housing. Um, you do see it, obviously, in things like uh, temporary housing, uh, emergency housing, uh, housing for scientific instruments. You know, there, there are certainly applications where um, the dome is useful. Uh, but you're right. It's not a invention that you see in widespread use anymore. Um, what, what I would point to uh, is the influence of Fuller's geometry, which you know produced the dome, is also visible uh, even today in the sciences. You know, in my, the epilogue to my book, I talk about the ways in which um, his geometry actually ended up being very useful to chemists, to virologists, uh, and to um, especially the discovery of uh, Buckminster Fullerene, which is mm-hmm. this. Uh, carbon molecule that has the structure of a geodesic sphere. And, uh, you know, Fuller's ideas were valuable, you know, and, and I, I like to underline this because, you know, as much as this book is devoted to kind of um, questioning some of his claims and restoring a more accurate picture of his career and his accomplishments, I do think that his ideas were often fantastic. And, and I'm really hoping that this book will introduce them to a wider audience. You know, Bucky Fuller was big in the Bay Area about 50 years ago, and he spoke at San Quentin, Golden Gate Park, Stanford, what was then San Jose State College. I'm wondering if you can talk about his appeal to that early hacker community. Yeah, so this is kind of how I discovered Fuller, because uh, I was born in the Bay Area. I was born in Castro Valley, uh, California, um, and I came about a generation later, all right? But at that time, Fuller's influence was still very visible, uh, you know, in in the East Bay. And I think it comes down to the the timing. So Fuller uh, really kind of breaks through to the counterculture, I would say, in the late 60s. And this is a time, obviously, of immense social crisis and tension, and you have, um, you know, uh, movements like the free speech movement in Berkeley that are trying to change things through political action. But against them, you have a different strain of activism, which is trying to change things through design. Um, and so someone like Stuart Brand, the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog, is saying, you know, it's actually very hard to change people. You know, what you should do is change tools and, and you know, change technology and try to find solutions this way. And this, you know, approach, you can debate whether or not it's more effective than the alternative. But, you know, clearly it's incredibly appealing if you're a young person who is looking around, seeing that the world is in, you know, in, in bad shape and wondering what you can do. And on the one hand, maybe you want to go protest, which Fuller discouraged, or you could invent something, you could design something, or you could apply these principles that Fuller is trying to teach you to improve, um, you know, uh, situations so that we can provide for all of mankind. And that message, obviously, if you're already inclined to technological solutions, is incredibly attractive. 
Matthew writes, when I was eight in 1965, my mom took me to San Jose State to hear a lecture by Bucky Fuller. I remember how excited we were about the future prospects of humanity in the 1960s. He was hard to understand, but he spoke of Spaceship Earth, which captured my imagination. Can Alec please comment on his vision of a sustainable future and a common vision for humanity? What remains of this legacy? So Fuller, to me, is interesting because he was always trying to get things done, okay? And in the um, early part of his career, you often see him approaching corporations, uh, investors, the military, the government, you know, to, like, build these domes or, you know, finance these projects. And and toward the end of the 60s, I think he had realized that this was no longer an option, all right? And so his message actually changes during this time. You know, it becomes much less about American dominance during the Cold War, which is a valid reading of what he was aiming for earlier on, and much more about providing for all of humanity, uh, you know, saying that Earth provides, like, all the resources that we need to sustain, you know, its entire population. So why aren't we allocating these these uh, resources more, more efficiently? And I think that's actually, like, a very – it's a valid, incredibly powerful message. But it, it's also one that Fuller arrived at because it was more appealing to the young people that he needed at that time. You know, he was um, – less and less able to raise money from companies to finance these ideas, but he still had college kids. You know, he still had young people. And so this is the time when Fuller, a guy in his 70s, starts to become much more popular on college campuses and starts to really appeal to the the counterculture. And it might seem a little strange, but it's, it's deliberate. You know, he is deliberately framing a message that he thinks is going to appeal to a more utopian, more idealistic, younger audience. He was kind of an evangelist for design. Well, I, I don't want to forget the folks who are lining up on the phones. Uh, why don't we go first to Dave in Oakland? Hi, thanks for your astonishing work. I actually heard you mention something I wanted to hear more about, which was Buckminster Fullerene or Buckyballs. And I'd love to hear more about that. I'll take my answer off the air. Um, yeah, no. So, so this is a, a great story. Um, so, the, the, the very short background here is that, as I mentioned earlier, Fuller des- designs the dome as a structure that can be built cheaply. It can be built, you know, with using minimal resources, using uh, you know different kinds of materials, um, because he doesn't really have a lot of money or a lot, a lot of a lot of time. Um, and what is very interesting is that this ends up being. Um, a he independently rediscovers rules that seem to govern how nature builds. And so you see these structures and things like virus uh, shells and the interior of the cell. And in the case of Buckminster Fullerene, you know, in 85, you have a team of scientists at Rice University in Texas who discover um, a new kind of carbon. And they know how big it is. They know it has 60 atoms and it has to be arranged in a shape that is enclosed and relatively stable. Um, and they realize that, well, a sphere or a spherical shape makes sense. And at one point, one of them says, who was that guy who built those domes? And they actually go to the library and find a copy of a book about Fuller and his work. And they look at the photographs and they discuss it over dinner. And by the next morning, they have this incredible model that they make out of like paper cutouts of essentially a soccer ball. It's a it's a uh, shape that has 60 vertices that, um, you know, is is stable and symmetrical 
and they end up calling it uh, Buckminster Fullerene. And, you know, that's in part an homage to Fuller, who influenced the way they, you know, approach the problem of what does this molecule look like. But it's also like a hint to to, um, anyone who knows the chemical formula, C60, and the name can probably figure out, oh, well, this is some kind of uh, geodesic structure. So to me, it's really remarkable that, you know, the rules that Fuller um, arrived at for purely practical reasons during his lifetime ended up being so useful uh, to the sciences. Great question, Dave. Let's go to Ken in San Francisco. Hi, Ken. Hi. Uh, hi. Oh, definitely going to get the book. Sounds great. I've read several of Bucky's books and other people who have written about him. I was lucky enough to be in the audience in the early 70s uh, when he was on stage with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi uh, at the Science of Creative Intelligence Symposium. And it was just a wonderful uh, time. Uh, they just were on the same frequency, and they were sort of playing off each other, and the whole audience was just on that wavelength, and I think uh, Bucky under, you know, could feel it, and he was quite excited about it. So it was a, a wonderful time to be there, and after he left, after Mr. Fuller left, Marishi claimed that he, he was enlightened. He was an enlightened being, so he was quite an extraordinary fellow. And one other couple of quick things. Um, in reading Fuller um, and those long run-on sentences, I, I come, I've come to the conclusion that they're very similar to patent claims. If you look at a claim and a patent, there are these long run-on sentences that start with a premise and then get more and more detail as they go on. And they're one long sentence. And he, he wrote a lot of patents, and I think he adopted uh, some of that writing technique into his own writing. So... I've also built two 40-foot domes in Bridgeport, Connecticut that were daycare. It was a daycare center in East Bridgeport, two 40-foot domes connected by a greenhouse, and they did leak. And so we had to uh, tar paper them and and shingle them because uh, they leaked. But they were great structures. The kids loved them. And, uh, you know, it uh, it was quite innovative at the time in the city of Bridgeport. Thank you so much for all of those thoughts, Ken. We're talking with Alec Navala Lee, author of the new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. Is there a particular Bucky Fuller invention or idea that inspired you, the listener? Which one might that be and why? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. But whatever you do, stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and I'm talking with Alec Navala Lee about his new book about Buckminster Fuller, his life and his influences called Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. And I can guarantee you it's an easier read than anything written by Buckminster Fuller. But Alec, before we head back to the phones, and because boy, people are lighting up the lines, I, I wanted you to talk about a little bit about the ways in which Bucky Fuller was one of the OG biohackers, like with his Dymaxian sleep schedule. Yes. So earlier I kind of mentioned the idea that, you know, Fuller is sort of the prototype startup founder. And if you look at his persona, you know, you kind of realize that if you're trying to found a startup, you know, Fuller, his life and career almost like give you a manual for like how to like encourage people to follow you and how to excite people. And one of them is what you call biohacking. Um, because, you know, again, Fuller does not have a lot of resources. He has himself, and he's out there trying to be what we call an influencer, trying to, you know, get people to pay attention to his ideas. And so one of the most obvious things is stuff like um, his sleep schedule, his diet, you know, the way he dresses. You know, he kind of creates this brand for himself in a way that is very reminiscent of startup culture today. So as early as the 30s, he's saying, oh, well, I can get by by sleeping, you know, half an hour every four hours, and I can sort of sustain, you know, like I can stay up longer than usual and get get by on less sleep than average. Um, And so that becomes kind of his trademark, Damaxian sleep. But the funny thing is that you look at his papers and his diary, and, you know, he does this for a pretty short time. You know, he only, you know, follows this regimen for maybe a few months, maybe a year, you know, out of his life. Um, but it becomes part of that story. It becomes part of that legend. Same thing with, uh, you know, his diet. You know, at, at one point he, you know, began to eat nothing but steak. Like he kind of like somehow reasoned, you know, the idea that the most efficient way of getting energy was by eating a, like a beef-based diet which doesn't really make sense ecologically. But again, it's it's the sort of thing that you see now with like um, sort of these influencers and people who are trying to create brands for themselves, um, you know, talking about you know, what they eat and, you know, their, their daily routine. And I think Fuller was one of the first people to really understand how powerful a tool that was. I think we've got time for a call now. How about Marcus in Riverside County? Hi, Marcus. Good morning. I'm uh, very grateful for this uh, opportunity. I was the one who conducted the last interview with Buckminster Fuller just before he died. I was uh, doing a radio program there in San Francisco, and one of the questions I wanted to ask him was, what kind of education was responsible for your thinking in these genius-like thought patterns. And he told me that his education at the Naval Academy there at Annapolis is what got him started. He uh, was educated to represent the entire government of the United States as commander of a ship at sea, 
And so uh, this was this was where it all started, apparently, for him. And uh, I was very grateful and uh, was very surprised after doing this uh, interview I had to type up a transcript and present it to my class there at Cal State Hayward. And uh, the class met on a Saturday. And when I presented the transcript to my classmates, someone walked in with a, a newspaper headline saying Buckminster Fuller had just died. Wow. What, what a great story. Thank you for, for sharing that, Marcus. Sherry writes, I was a bilingual guide inside the birdcage for Expo 67. I was able to meet Bucky a couple of times. It's been around for a while, or the the dome is a brilliant idea. Unfortunately, at the Montreal Fair, the panels were frozen shut, and they weren't synced with the plexiglass, and it rained inside the pavilion. The guys had to use umbrellas even inside. Whether brilliant ideas are flawed, he led me to pursue architecture, where I wrote a thesis and other articles on Paolo Soleri, another brilliant but very flawed visionary. Genius comes at a price. Uh, any thoughts on that, Alec? I mean, you know, you, you go into great detail uh, in this book, Inventor of the Future, uh, about Bucky's ideas, but also his complicated relationships with all sorts of people. Uh, do you feel like, like one comes with the other, genius comes at a price? Um, you know, that's a great question. So I, I want to make it very clear that I'm a Fuller fan. I think, you know, I, I, I wrote this book in large part to bring his ideas to as large an audience as possible. Um, but I did see my idealized picture of him evolving, you know, over the course of writing it as, as you sort of realize, number one, how much he embellished or fictionalized aspects of his life. And, and, and number two, like how many people he had, um, you know, very fraught interactions with. Uh, these include his family, his friends, his students, his colleagues. You know, there, there are a lot of people who felt damaged by those interactions. And I, I do wonder about this because, you know, the, 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 the thing that I find about Fuller or, you know, the thing that attracts me to Fuller is that his example to me seems very useful. It seems very instructive. If you're the kind of person who wants to create change in the real world, you know, he, he did it. You know, he got so much started, you know, during his life. But there are consequences. And, and, you know, to me, like, that example is not useful if we don't talk about the costs. And so, you know, I think at this, you know, in the year 2022, we're familiar enough with the startup founder archetype to acknowledge that, you know, you don't become that kind of person without there being some kind of downside. And I think we see this in Steve Jobs. We see it in people like Elon Musk. And in Fuller is like an amazing case study because he came first or he was one of the first people to really embody that archetype. And there's so much information about his life. Um, and so, you know, this this book to me is really an attempt to get at that myth and kind of talk about the ways in which it's it's instructive and helpful, but also, you know, the ways in which it can cause issues as well. You know, uh, speaking of which, <laughs> damaging relationships and also brilliant or at least interesting, compelling ideas. Lanny tweets, as a car nut, I've always been fascinated by the Dymaxion car, uh, you know, which he would describe in later years as, you know, something that was brought down by external forces. But but uh, really, this this was a flop for a good reason, as, as you describe in the book. Yes. And if people are curious, I actually um, 
there was an excerpt in Slate that ran uh, two weeks ago that talks about this. But essentially, you know, the Damactian car was a car that Fuller developed in the 30s that looks sort of like a tadpole. You know, it's got this ovoid shape with the large end in front. It's got three wheels. You know, it, it looks like a Buck Rogers sort of science fiction vehicle. And Fuller always said that it was involved in an accident in Chicago in October 33 that was the other car's fault. It was it was struck by a car that was trying to race it, and their Damaxian car rolled over, and the driver was killed. And this essentially doomed the car as a design. Uh, but when you go back to his papers and you know the inquest and news articles and other primary sources from that period, you see, in fact, that's not what happened. You know, the Damaxian car rolled on its own, and it was a design flaw. You know, it, it's very hard to read you know those sources and not come away with the idea that this car was you know fatally flawed in important ways. And Fuller, you know, deliberately, uh, I won't say he falsified, but he embellished and fictionalized, you know, the record to make himself look better. And and this is a pattern you, you do see, you know, repeated across his entire career. You know, I, it makes me wonder if, if his best ideas are really the ones that are conceptual. They're, they're best because they're just on paper. I, I'm thinking of uh, the Damaxian map, a projection of a world map onto the surface of an isosahedron. Uh, can you describe that? Yeah, so uh, Fuller um, is, from the beginning, you know, he is really... Um, fascinated by cartography, you know, as, you know, a caller just mentioned, you know, he was a, a naval, uh, you know, um, graduate, and he loved sailing, and he loved ships, um, and the Damaxian map was his attempt to um, provide a projection of the Earth that would um, retain the accurate uh, proportions of the continents. So, you know, like most projections, you see some distortion, or you see some inaccuracy of, of scale, and he is able to kind of almost working by hand, like figure out a way to um, unfold the icosahedron, which is a 20, uh, a polyhedron with 20 uh, triangular faces uh, onto a flat surface. And, you know, if you've ever seen this map, it's a really striking design. It's really beautiful. And it comes out of geometry, you know, in the same way that the dome comes out of geometry. So, you know, one, one goal I had in writing this book is like saying that, you know, Fuller did all these things and they seem very different on the surface. But if you kind of step back and see where they came from, you know, they all reflect this lifelong obsession with structure, with um, kind of the, the rules of how design works. And it, it all kind of makes sense. It, it all kind of holds together as being this incredible decades-long project. Uh, Tony writes, could you address his ideas about vitamin C? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't, I don't uh, think I have that information. Um, it's quite possible that Fuller talked about vitamin C, but if he did, um, it's not an issue that I address in the book. That said, you know, uh, he was someone who I, I, I'm going to, you know, be uh, as generous as possible here. He was someone who often talked about subjects about which he had little firsthand experience and firsthand knowledge. You know, he he was a generalist, or that, that's the way he portrayed himself. And so toward the end, he would talk about uh, the human body. He would talk about the brain. He would talk about history, you know, and, and there's actually a lot of uh, misinformation there. Um, so, you know, I would be very cautious, and, and I think, Many people, even at the time, were aware of this. I, I would be cautious about taking Fuller at his word, uh, you know, when it comes to subjects that are outside, you know, his area of expertise. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. And we're talking with Alec Navala Lee, author of the new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. Uh, let's head back to the phones. How about Shelley in Oakland? Hi, Shelley. Hello. Hi. Hello. Yes. Hi. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm just calling in because in 1980, I went to hear him speak at Aspen Design Conference when I was a a um, student of, de- of graphic design at San Jose State. And it was really a great trip. I actually don't really remember <laughs> the talk, but I'm curious now. I'm going to see if I wrote about it in my journals or something. <laughs> anyway, this is so interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shelley. I, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thought, like, how to describe it, Alec? I, I think I've, I've described it a little bit uh, earlier this hour. Even if you if you didn't if you didn't really understand what Bucky was talking about, you felt like you did, and you felt inspired as a result. Yes. So, so he was just this incredibly charismatic person, you know, and um, you know he he again, like as you say, you know, people often say that they went to his lectures and they heard him talk for hours and they weren't quite sure what he was getting at, um, but, you know, they were they were compelled by it. And this is something that you see going back, you know, much earlier in his career, you know, before he became famous. And, and again, to me, he is this American figure who kind of combines the qualities of an engineer, but also a mystic, you know, in ways that um, I think we are more familiar with now. You know, I, I think um, startup founders are sometimes compared to cult leaders. And I think Fuller, while his ideas, I think, are genuinely beneficial and interesting, also had that side to him as well. You know, this sort of, um, uh, there, there are aspects of his career that recall, uh, you know, um, these more controversial figures who do start cults and do start movements, you know, that um, are really about the man himself and not about the ideas that he's expressing. Um, and this is a big part of the reason why Fuller's legacy is like a little bit complicated because after he died, you know, there were not a lot of uh, people prepared to move forward with those ideas. And I think a big part of the reason that happened is that so much of it was focused on him, on, on his personality and his charisma and his presence. Andy writes, when I was a student at Chico State in 1980 or 81, Bucky came to campus and I got to sit in awe for three hours while he talked about everything. Bruce writes, I remember as a teenager wandering around the Museum of Modern Art in New York, seeing Bucky's geodesic domes, but also these wonderful tensegrity masses. I remember running home to my housing project apartment in the Bronx and trying to make these things out of toothpicks and string. I failed miserably. <laughs> Why don't we talk now to Jim in San Francisco? Hi, Jim. Hello. Hi, can we hear can hear okay? you. Yes, we can. Yeah, actually, it's Tim. Um, my mother, Barbara Blair, was a good friend of him uh, in the 50s and 60s, and she was a modern abstract sculptor, and he helped her with a design engineering problem that came right out of nature and his discussion about being inspired by form and shape in nature uh he uh he was in the, she was with him and, and his wife in their garden in long island uh, city new york and reached down uh a pulled a leaf from a branch and said, said uh look at the structure of this leaf um nature has all the 
information intuitively to get from how it structures itself in a natural form like this leaf. Look at the ribs and the skin uh, holding it together and how boats were built with the ribbing from this original inspiration of design. You said go to nature whenever you can't understand or figure it out and just look at the form and pattern out there. Tim, thank you for that, uh, for sharing that. You, you know, Alec, it, it makes me think of, of uh, uh, one of the friendships that you describe uh, Fuller had for a stretch with the sculptor Isamu Noguchi. Yes, so Noguchi and Fuller were friends, you know, starting in the late 20s, and they remained friends, you know, for like the rest of their lives. Um, and uh, yeah, one thing about this book that I, I want to like underline is the number of people that Fuller um, interacts with. So Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Claire Booth Luce, John Houston, John Denver, John Cage, um, and Noguchi, you know, who, um, you know, Fuller is very close with. And, uh, you know, to me, that's actually one of the more intriguing um, friendships in the book because Noguchi eventually um, becomes much more successful than Fuller in terms of the um, the amount of money he can earn from his sculpture and sort of the museum he builds and sort of the ongoing, uh, you know, like an institution that, you know, he leaves behind him because uh, Fuller does not do that. Fuller does not earn um, or he does not save a lot of money. He does not build a museum that can house his work, you know, when he's gone because for him it's sort of this, um, as you say, you know, instead of creating buildings or sculptures, in the end, it becomes uh, much more abstract. It becomes, you know, these axioms of geometry. It becomes these ideas, these words that he produces. And unlike someone like Noguchi, where you can go to Long Island City right now and see those amazing sculptures in person, there really is no um, museum or central place where all of Fuller's uh, artifacts are stored. And I think that's a very interesting um, consequence of the kind of career that, that he had. You know, we have just a few seconds to go, Alec, but but I guess my last question for you is, uh, do you still find him as inspiring as you found him when you were young after having written this book? I would say that the answer is yes, although the inspiration I, I derive from him is very different. Um, I think that seeing the complete picture, you know, has helped me a lot in terms of understanding um, him and also similar figures that we see today. And honestly, you know, I, I do think of this book as a handbook. It, it's like a manual, um, and it and kind of like explores not just what Fuller did, but how and why in, in ways that I think are actually pretty interesting. So if you're a young person trying to change things and you're looking for a role model and a cautionary tale, I think Fuller is your guy. Alec Navala Lee, author of the new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. This was really great. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.